Praise the Lord. Amen. Man, God is doing some awesome work. In case you don't know, that is Joseph Gibbons. Uh, he has spoken here actually before he left for Vegas, he and his wife, Kristen, and they are in Las Vegas. So they are our first missions partner. They are continuing to be a missions partner for us. Uh, and they are going to be our Samaria missions partner. We'll explain that a little bit in just a moment, but they are going through an incredible stage of life. Their church plant is different than ours. They have started with a small group, uh, and so they they carried over a few from Alabama. They're from Alabama. They're from the Mobile area. Uh, carried a few over from their church there, but most of their team is being made up of people that are living in Las Vegas, and so they are they are have planted a church there. They are not meeting weekly. So one of the things that they're doing, he talks about invite night. Uh, that is a monthly meeting that they have. So they meet in small group, and then they invite a bunch of folks to the invite nights. And so they're already seeing uh, some numbers there. So we're excited to be a part of that. Uh, We're a financial partner with them, but we are about to be more than that. And so through this sent series that we've been going through, not only are we giving you the missions partners that we have as a church, but we are giving you a way that you can be involved in it. And so in your bulletins, uh, if you will look uh, there for how to pray for Favor City Church in Las Vegas, there are three things that you can pray for there. They want uh, to meet at Green Valley High School, similar to how we met in Elkmont at the beginning. They're meeting in a mobile at a mobile campus there at that local high school. Pray that God gives them favor there. Number two, numerical and spiritual growth for their launch team. They're establishing that launch team that was so important with us. Uh, some of you were there. Some of you were there the first Sunday that we launched. And so it's been neat to see how God has done that. Uh, But then thirdly and finally, a very practical request. They need the provision of a truck that can pull their trailer. Y'all know our big 22 foot trailer that we carried around. I learned how to back up a trailer thanks to that trailer. Um, But they are needing a truck to pull that and further financial assistance and partnership. So be praying about that. Pray for those. Listen, the most powerful thing we can do as a a church, as a group of baptized believers, the most important thing that we can do is pray. The most powerful thing we can do is pray. This is not a Hail Mary pass at the end of the ball game. I hope everything else has failed. I hope this works. This is a major tool in the arsenal of God to do accomplish kingdom effort and kingdom work. And so we want you to be praying for them, but we will be going more than likely at later on in the summer in 2023, we're going to be manning a mission trip to Las Vegas. We're going to be helping them getting things uh, ready. They're launching in the fall for weekly meetings is still the plan. And so we will be helping and supplementing whatever they have need for next year. So make sure that you make plans for that. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. I do want to say thank you and I want to say congratulations to our seniors. Uh, it's amazing to see what God is all, how God has already blessed in our student ministry. Is anybody in here thankful for the Bakers? Thankful for Joseph and Lauren Baker? Man, you, you don't have to be around our students long 
to know how valuable uh, some people like the Bakers are uh, for ministry here and what we're doing. And so, man, God's doing some amazing things in our student ministry. But we are excited for our our graduates in the next stage of life that they have. And I I pray that they take this series uh, and they apply it to their lives. We use Acts 1-8 as our model for our church, that that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We've talked about ministry where we're at. That's our Jerusalem, in our, in our community of Elkmont, where you live, West Limestone and Ardmore and, and Clements and Athens and wherever, wherever you may live, God using you where you're at. We've talked about uh, what it looks like in a Judea ministry with people that are like you, people that you enjoy being around, people that share interests. But today... We're going to talk about ministry in Samaria. So we're not just sent where we're at and where we're familiar. We're sent where we don't want to be at times. There are times for us in our life that we will be sent and be doing things that we might not necessarily be excited about. And so what do we do when we find ourselves in a Samaria context? We look at Samaria as our missions partner with Favor City. We're talking about people that are not like us. Right? We're talking about people in Las Vegas that come from very unique and different backgrounds, very diverse. I remember taking a mission trip out there when I was in college, uh, and I remember meeting some people that they, their lifestyles are just completely different. And y'all, I'm, I'm not talking about just what goes on on the strip. There is community for days around that, that area, right? That infrastructure. And so we're going to be meeting those needs. Uh, and, and Favor City, we're partnering with them as they do that. But people that are around things that we're uncomfortable with, right? If a bunch of Baptists go to Las Vegas, usually they just don't, they don't tell nobody, right? Like that's just something, <laughs> we leave it over in Vegas, right? We, we go, we ain't going to tell nobody. As, as Vance Pittman says, uh, we don't believe it's hell, but we believe you can probably smell it from there, right? So like we understand that the, the culture they live in is, is different, but God has not just called you church where you're comfortable. He's not just called you where you're comfortable. Sometimes it's hard enough just to, I'm doing good just to go to someone I'm comfortable with and share in Christ. But God does not sell the gospel and world evangelism short. He calls us to Samaria. And so what we find in John chapter 4 is an encounter that Jesus has with a woman from Samaria. And so we're going to talk about, as we unpack this, a very familiar passage of Scripture, but what Jesus was encountering and how Jesus was making a difference and changing the cultures of the places that he was in. And so the first thing that we see in this encounter with this Samaritan woman is we see that inconvenience was met with intention. Inconvenience was met with intention. Would you read with me in your copy of God's word, John chapter four, beginning in verse one. Listen what it says. And now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he was gaining steam, right? He was the emerging political power. It was John the Baptist. And then Jesus began to gain steam. And so they were beginning to be more threatened by Jesus It says in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. 
Now, for us in the North Alabama 2021 context, we can miss miles and miles of context here if we just read Scripture without diving into the context that it was written in. But for Jesus to say, for the Scripture to say that Jesus had to go through Samaria was not indicating that there was only one way to get to Galilee from Judea. In fact, the way Jesus went was absolutely unheard of. For a Jew to travel from Judea to Galilee, so if you're looking at a map, Judea is in the south. You've got the Jordan River here. You've got Samaria above them and sandwiched in between Galilee and Judea is the region of Samaria. And the Jews hated the Samaritans to such a degree that they created a route where they would leave not going north, they would leave east and they would go over the Jordan River, go through the Jordan River, they would pass through the, the region Perea and Decap- Decapolis, they would pass through these regions north and then pass back over the river in order to get to Galilee. They would never even step foot in the land. Literally, in their teaching, it was against their tradition to touch anything that a Samaritan had touched, including the ground that they walked on. And so for for it to be said of Jesus that he had to pass through Samaria is not saying that there there was only one road, so they had to go through Samaria. Right? You talk about Elmont sometimes, right? There's not many roads to get to Elmont. It's not one of those places that you just happen to be. And I grew up in Lickskill. And let me tell you, if you're going to Lickskill, you better do it intentionally. You don't just look up and be like, where am I at? Lickskill. Oh, okay. Like, you got to go there intentionally, right? Elmont is much the same way. Jesus went through Samaria intentionally. It may have been the shortest route geographically, but it's set up to be a very inconvenient route for him. Can you imagine his disciples who had probably at this time never stepped foot in Samaria? When Jesus made the turn towards Samaria, can you imagine what his disciples thought? Can you imagine the the questions that he had to field? Why are we going to Samaria? We're not supposed to go to Samaria. The tradition says not to. We'll be unclean, right? We should go around like we always do. It was inconvenient for him, so he'd have to have conversations with his disciples. This would have been a less established route. The roads would have been much more grown up because people just did not go. The people in Samaria didn't leave Samaria. They worshipped within Samaria. And the people in Judea and in Galilee went around them. And so there was really not many inroads even into the region. But more than that, Jesus would allow himself intentionally to be inconvenienced by a conversation that he would have with a woman in Sychar. Have with a woman in Samaria. What we see in this is Jesus being intentional about where he goes. When he says he had to go to, to, through Samaria, it's not speaking that it was the only route to go. What he was saying is the Holy Spirit and compelled him to go to this region for this conversation. In your notes, the effective Christian life will always be lived on purpose. The effective Christian life will always be lived 
on purpose. In the same way that Jesus intentionally went through Samaria, even though there were plenty of other well-worn paths around, then the same intentionality, we should live our lives for the gospel. There's not going to be a time, church, in your life where you will just find yourself accidentally obeying God and doing what God has called you to do. When we allow ourselves to drift in neutral, we are always going downhill. And so God has called us to live with intentionality, to live the Christian life on purpose, to be spend time with him, to purposefully and intentionally leverage relationships toward the gospel, to leverage conversations toward eternal value. God has called us to live with intention. So his inconvenience was met with intention. But number two, culture was met with concern. Culture was met with concern. John 4, verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journeys, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, somewhere around midday. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is the author trying to give you some context of why this is such a weird conversation. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Father, allow your word to permeate and penetrate our hearts. God, let it it change us. God, encourage us outside the societal norms that we typically like to function in. And Father, let us live with intention in our life. Let us meet culture, not to, not to be uh, conformed to culture, but to transform culture with your message of your gospel. Let us be different from the rest of the world. Father, we love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Based on this passage of scripture, what we see is the great divide between Jews and Samaritans ultimately was cultural. They had very, very different backgrounds. The northern kingdom of Israel, when they were overtaken by the Assyrians, the, the, the name, uh, Israel was split into two. There was Israel in the north and there was Judah in the south. When Assyria, the Assyrians took over The northern kingdom, the way that the Assyrians like to do it is any conquered people, they would scatter throughout their entire empire. So they would take a ton of the people that they, that they had there in Israel and they scattered them throughout the entire Assyrian empire. And so what they would do then in response is they would take their Assyrian citizens and they would move them over into the conquered people. And so what began to happen was with the Assyrians is there was intermarrying that was going on. The Assyrians would intermarry with the Jews. Now here's the problem. God had called Israel to be a chosen 
people. He had called them to be set apart. The story of the Old Testament is how God saves the people of Israel in order to bring about the Messiah who would change and save the nations. So the Old Testament picture was Israel is to be separate and holy different than every other people group, every other country, so that God would bless them and the Messiah would come. And then the Messiah would be a blessing to all nations. And so for the people of God in Israel to begin to intermarry, although this is not a new thing, they intermarried with the Canaanites, they intermarried with everybody in that time, but for them to begin to intermarry, for someone in Judah looking up at them, seeing what they were doing, there was a great amount of shame. And so those people, those Samaritans, as they became called, were literally regarded as half-breeds. They were the black sheep of the family. We don't talk about the Samaritans. They were the smudge on the sterling reputation of Israel, as if it were sterling to begin with, but they were a thing of shame. And so there was nothing to be done. The Samaritans didn't leave Samaria and the people in Galilee and Judea definitely did not venture into Samaria. While this cultural divide certainly existed between Jesus and the woman, right? Not, and by the way, not just that she was Samaritan, but she was also a woman. And at that time, a man just didn't come up and talk to a woman. That just didn't happen. It was not the way that things went about. And so when Jesus opened his mouth, not just to a Samaritan, which would already by the tradition of the elders make him ceremonially unclean, but, but for him to talk to her being a woman was breaking incredible cultural ground. And she was astonished. She was surprised. But Jesus saw past the physical differences in order to meet a spiritual need. The woman didn't just need water. She needed living water. And it was worth it to him to be inconvenienced. And it was worth it to him to transcend culture in order to reach someone who was not like himself. I remember going to... New Orleans, uh, when I was at the University of Mobile. And in New Orleans, there's a heavy, heavy homeless population. And we would go to the Claiborne Overpass, which is the, was at the time the second most concentrated community of homelessness in the United States, second to Skid Row in Los Angeles. And, and so huge population of homeless people. And we would go as students and we would do all kinds of different things with them. Now we took precautions and made sure that we were safe and, and those sorts of things. But it was a, it was a really rough area, but we would go and we would play cards or board games. We would bring them meals. We would take the, take tracks to them. We would just try to witness to them and try to just live alongside them for a certain period of time as college students. And um, there was one particular man, an interaction that I had there. His name was Clarence. And Clarence had the only thing that he possessed to make him comfortable in life. And many of them choose it. Like many of them, it's a lifestyle that they choose, okay? So I'm not, I'm not trying to make any, take any political stance against homelessness or, or forward. I'm just, I'm just telling you this conversation I had. This man had nothing to keep him comfortable but the chase of a sectional couch. It was the chase portion, the little out, the the small little piece 
of a sectional couch that he used to keep himself comfortable. The tent was literally his o- the overpass. And so he was left open to the elements and those sorts of things. And I remember talking to Clarence. And as I was talking to Clarence, uh, he was just really closed off. And I, we just weren't getting anywhere at all. And I kept talking to him and trying to interact with him. I brought him food. And how dare this man not speak to me? I brought him food, right? So we began to talk. And over the course of time, I would love to say that I was real intentional about it. To be honest with you, I just got tired. And instead of taking a knee on the cement that was also their bathroom, I decided to sit on their couch, on this guy's couch beside him, just right on the corner. Immediately, I I recognized my mistake. Like it was, it was, didn't smell great. It was wet from the rain the day before. It was not a pleasant experience. But as soon as I sat down, Clarence looked at me and he said, you know, there's been a ton of people that's come under this overpass and peddled some gospel, some, some religious stuff. He said, I've seen plenty of people come and even do activities and try to plan activities for us. I've, I've eaten a million meals from people bringing food to the homeless. He said, Alan, you're the first person that ever sat on my couch. Now, it wasn't something I did even intentionally, but for Clarence, I had crossed a cultural divide. For Clarence, instead of being someone who's telling him the things that he ought to do, I became, in sitting on his couch, symbolically, I was taking equal footing with him. I got an amazing opportunity to share the gospel with him. Now, Clarence didn't receive Christ that day, but I believe God used that conversation. And there was openness like there had never been with Clarence. Never met him, and he was, he was gone the next time we got there. But that conversation proved to me that there is something more important than our personal preference and our personal comfort zone. In your notes, the needs of those outside the church are greater than the preferences of those within the church. The reason why churches fail is somewhere down the road, we get so caught up in how we like to do things that we miss the fact that there are people that are dying and splitting hell wide open. And we miss that. And in missing that and, and getting so focused on ourselves, we become making things idols. And we begin sacrificing the mission of God for our personal preferences. In order to view things this way, you must be willing to let go of what makes you comfortable. Our concern for the world must be greater than our concern for ourself. We'll either live to meet needs or you will live to have your needs met. There's really only two ways to live. And so Jesus met met inconvenience with intention. He met uh, culture with concern. But also we see in this passage that the trial of this young lady was met With testimony, John 14, beginning in verse 16. And Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. In fact, for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said, one of the more humorous things in scripture, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. 
For you to tell me all of that, for you to be reading my mail, I perceive that you are a prophet. But I want you to understand something about grace. Grace doesn't dismiss sin. If you are to be gracious toward those outside of a relationship with Christ, it does not mean that we dismiss sin. Jesus didn't dismiss this woman's sin. She was in sin and she had lived a lifestyle of sin. Jesus didn't dismiss that. In fact, he put his finger right on the hurt. So we have a danger as a church to dismiss sin altogether, but we also have a danger as a church to only look at sin. To look at sin and put our finger on that sin and explain why what that sin, why that sin is so much bigger and so much more unacceptable than the sin that we live and tote around every single day. You can do it from either way. You can do it from either side. You can either dismiss it and it's all about love and acceptance, but that's a lie and that's not founded in truth. In fact, it's hatred because we're, we're, we're leaving out the truth. Or you can tell somebody how wrong they are. But Jesus didn't do either of those things. Jesus didn't dismiss the sin. So grace doesn't dismiss sin, but grace proves that sin no longer disqualifies us. Our sin is still there. In fact, the beauty of what Christ did for me is I'm not righteous. Y'all, there ain't nothing I could ever do to be righteous. But God has given me his son's righteousness. He doesn't argue my merits as a human being. He argues his son's substitute on my behalf. And so the same sin that would have condemned me in my sin no longer disqualifies me in Christ. This is exactly how Jesus handles this issue. Not dismissing the sin, but dealing with it, but showing her that there was grace in spite of of sin. In light of our sin, there's grace. How does she respond? Jump down to verse 28. We're going to skip the text for just a second. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and she went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Why did God, why did Jesus point out her sin? Because that was her brokenness. But God had plans for her brokenness. Trial, this lady's trial was met with testimony. This woman having really, and we don't see her walking an aisle. We don't see her checking a box. We, we honestly don't know when she received Christ. We, we can infer that she did, but we don't know really when that happened. All we see is this woman getting so fired up about things. She left her water park, which is the whole reason why she was there in the first place. She ran into her community and she started telling all of those friends that were pointing fingers at her. All of those people that were gossiping about her. All of those people that were treated her so poorly that she had to go in the middle of the day to get water instead of the beginning. And she began, God began using her brokenness to bring wholeness to her community. God desires, in your notes, God desires to use our past brokenness to bring future wholeness to others. God doesn't waste our pain. Your trial is what God desires to use for his glory. For you. It becomes your testimony. God used the thing that hurt her the most to make, to point people back to himself. 
This is the way God redeems our hurts and our struggles and our depressions, our insecurities. God gets the focus off of us. But through our testimony of seeing what God has done through us, we point people ultimately to him. So inconvenience was met with intention. Culture was met with concern. Trial was met with testimony. And finally, religion was met with relationship. John 4, verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, right? Let's get off the subject of how many husbands I've had and the man I went down to my husband. Let's get off that. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She was speaking of Mount, uh, Mount Gerizim, which was where they worshipped in the first five books of the Bible. The first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, most of the worship happened by the patriarchs on Mount Gerizim. And so she was talking about Mount Gerizim, which was in the region of Samaria. And so they treated that mountain like it was their center for worship. And so they were, she was explaining again a cultural debate. My religion happens on this mountain. But you say, and the Jews say, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Verse 21, but Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship Worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You know what's amazing about this? In the Gospels, Jesus is typically hush-hush about who he is. To most of the, the Jews, to the Pharisees, to even people he heals, like he'll heal, him, heal them and they'll realize he's the Messiah and he's like, don't tell nobody. In John chapter 4, we have the first admission of Jesus of, to a person of who he is. And it ain't to the religious elite. It ain't to the people like him in Judea. It certainly ain't like people in Nazareth in his hometown. It came to a stranger of a completely different culture, to the woman at the well. If anybody was worthy of hearing this news, it surely was not this woman. But his first revelation of who he is to somebody came to a strange Samaritan woman who was living in sin. My friend, that tells us something about the availability of the gospel, does it not? She was asking a theological question. Well, where should we worship? Where is religion? And Jesus said, it's not about where you worship. My friend, if you come to church so that you can worship on Sunday, you're missing the point of being a child of God. We don't come to a place to worship. In your notes, our Old Testament worship happened in a venue. It happened on a mountain. It happened uh, at the temple. It happened in a tabernacle. It happened in a synagogue. These are where Old Testament, this is where Old Testament worship happened. New Testament wor- worship happens within a vessel. 
And so New Testament worship is not about the position of your feet, but the posture of your heart. It's what Jesus meant when he said, listen, I don't care whether you worship on this mountain. I don't care if you worship at the temple. I don't care where you worship. The important thing is you worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Not physically where you're at, but where you are with Christ. Where you are with me. What does your spirit, how does your spirit align with God's spirit? It's not found in a venue. It's found when Jesus would allow for his Holy Spirit through his sacrifice to invade the hearts and the lives of people. Old Testament worship was man's attempts to reach God. This was the problem. This is why Jesus said, things got to change here, lady at the well. Things got to change because you can't get to me. You can't get to God on your own attempts, regardless of where you worship. Old Testament worship was man's attempts to get to God. New Testament worship is the celebration of God reaching down to man. That's what we celebrate. So why do we cross the divides? Why do we do what is uncomfortable? Why do we go places that maybe we might not tend to frequent on our own power? At least if we do, we ain't telling nobody about it. Why would we do those things? Because I can think of no greater culture shock than what Jesus experienced for me. I don't know about you, but I don't see any greater differences of culture than the culture of heaven with eternal worship of the perfect son of God and what he took on for us on earth. The reason why we cross any barrier that may be represented, the reason why we remove our, the car comfort out of the equation, the reason why we put our yes on the table to wherever God would have us is because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He transcended every culture in coming from heaven to earth to make a difference for me. Y'all, he found me as a wretch. He found me completely without hope. He found me like this Samaritan woman. But because God reached down, because he transcended culture and those barriers of religion, because he did those things, I have access to the presence of God. God's Holy Spirit lives within me. I can worship him, not because I'm gathered here at this church or at a church down the road, but because I myself am a tabernacle that houses the presence of God. The Holy Spirit has moved in me. And he offers the same thing to you today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes as we enter a time of invitation? You may be the most religious human being in this room. You may be. Man, you may be at church every time the doors are open. Man, you may, be, you may read, be reading your Bible every morning. You may be praying. You may be doing all the right things. But ultimately, what Jesus called the Samaritan woman to and what he calls us to is not a list of things that we ought to do and ought not to do. What Jesus was calling the Samaritan woman to was himself. And so if you're here, 
And I don't care how many times you've been to church, how many Bible verses you've memorized, or how many hours you've spent in prayer. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to know that God offers relationship to you today. That you today can experience what it means to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. If you will confess your sins, if you will lay aside your sins, your tradition, your comfort, if you will lay that aside and you will pursue Christ, he offers himself to you willfully with open arms. If you're here today and you need to make a decision for Christ, whether here in this room or online watching through stream, you have the opportunity that you can respond today. I'm here at the front and would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Christ. Come find me. I'm here at the front. You can't miss me. One aisle in this place, right? Come to this center aisle. Find me. We've got counselors. would love to talk to you about anything that you, any decision you need to make for the Lord. But also, that invitation isn't just for those that don't know they don't have a relationship with Christ, but it's also for those that know they do have a relationship with Christ because God saves us. He crossed boundaries for us to reach us so that we would in turn reach others. And so if we in our life are not living with the same intentionality to make a difference, to make it hard to go to hell from Elkmont is is kind of the rallying cry that I've had from day one of this church. It's why we're here. I want to make it harder for people to go to hell. If you don't live with that intentionality, You can do business with the Lord today as well. This altar's open. I'd love to talk to you. Anybody that needs to make any decision today, membership, the church, whatever the case may be. Maybe you need to follow the Lord in baptism. Whatever the case may be, I would love to talk to you about any of those decisions. We've got counselors that would love to talk to you as well. But don't allow this moment to slip by before you respond to the message that you've heard today. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you're going to do in this place.